Good morning. Uh, today's scripture is uh, Luke, Luke chapter 13, verses 10 to 17. Jesus heals a, uh, heals a crippled woman. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And just then there appeared a woman with a spirit that had crippled her for 18 years. She was bent over and was quite unable to stand up straight. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said, Woman, you are set free from your ailment. When he laid his hands on her, immediately she stood up straight and began praising God. But the leader of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had cured on the Sabbath, kept saying to the crowd, There are six days on which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be cured and not on the Sabbath day. But the Lord answered him and said, You hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath unite his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it to the water? To water? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 long years, be set free from this bondage on the Sabbath day? When he said this, all his opponents were put to shame and the entire crowd was rejoicing at all the wonderful things being done by him. Good morning, everyone. Welcome. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Greg. It's always uh, good to come together to worship. Uh, do many of you know the story of uh, Claiborne Paul Ellis? Claiborne Paul Ellis, he's known to C.P. Ellis to his friends. I'm going to use C.P. because it's faster. Grew up in the American state of North Carolina in the 1930s. He grew up in a poor, white, working class family. And just like his dad, he had to work multiple jobs at the same time in order to support his family. And just like his dad, he was deeply racist, and he blamed all of his problems on the black community. And just like his dad, he, be he was a member of the Ku Klux Klan, which is an infamously hate-filled white supremacist group known for burning crosses, uh, lynching members of the black community, and perhaps even worse, winding their ways through influence of politics and leadership throughout the states. Even as late as the 1970s, and so the story I'm telling you is actually 1971. So for those of us who are 50 or older, that's really not that long ago, right? 1970, we're talking about in North Carolina, we're not even talking about Deep South. The Ku Klux Klan had great influence over a culture. Because this man was seen as a leader, he was invited to a community meeting to discuss racial problems in their local schools. He showed up with a shotgun in his pickup truck, and his intention in the meeting was to stand for white supremacy. Unfortunately for him, or for, I mean fortunately for him, but in his mind, unfortunately, he actually ended up being made co-chair of a committee, a committee tasked with deciding how to end segregation in the schools. How to bring white and black children together in the schools. And not only that, but his co-chair was a woman named Ann Atwater. A black woman 
who was an African-American civil rights activist. In his mind, his literal enemy, a woman that he hated, he didn't even need to know anything about her. He, just, he hated her not just because of what she stood for of equal rights, but he hated her simply for who she was for having a black body. So both Anne and CP, part of the first thing they had to do is they had to go to their own communities to try to recruit people to this committee. And both of them came back with the same story. No one would have anything to do with them, right? Because of who they were working with. Both of their children were being made fun of and ridiculed and bullied at school. C.P. Ellis's kid was being made fun of because his dad was working with one of those terrible black women. And Anne Atwater's kid was being bullied because she was working with an actual terrible person, a member of the KKK. Both of their children were being persecuted because of their parents. And they came together and they shared these experiences. C.P. Ellis began to see they actually had a lot in common, not only through the suffering of their children, but they also shamed the same oppression of poverty that both of them struggled under their whole lives. They were more alike than they were different. And so with only 10 days of working with Atwater, with this newfound empathy, C.P. Ellis tore up his membership to the KKK in a public meeting And he went on to become an important organizer for the civil rights movement, spending the rest of his life working against the KKK and other white nationalist groups to help fight for human rights alongside of Atwater and the black community. Now, what was something that was interesting, which is, that's amazing. And as I read different stories and versions of it, something that was always common, as amazing as this transformation was, he was the hero. The white man is the hero in the story because he changed. Well, but he should have never been like that in the first place. So how is he a hero for becoming something he should have been all along? The real hero in the story, of course, is Atwater, Anne Atwater, who was willing to take literal risk of her life and her family and her community and all the work she had done in her community. She risked all of this to work with a white man who wanted to kill her in his very being. Anyway, one of those times where it's a beautiful, wonderful, transformational story, but he's not the hero. He barely even caught up. She's the hero in this story. And this is something that empathy does for all of us. It changes us. It changes who we see as the heroes in the stories. No longer do we, can we learn to not just look at that amazing white man who was oppressing people who all of a sudden started caring for others but for those who have had to live under that systemic racism and had the strength to do so. This is just one of those countless stories of how God's goodness breaks into the world, not because of mere intellectual exercises. This didn't happen because he took a class on black history. It happened because two human beings saw each other and experienced a sharing of one another's suffering and humanity. If we cannot see each other, we cannot love each other. And empathy is the bridge that begins the journey of traversing the violent rapids of division, hatred, and evil, and brings us into new lands of unity, of love, and of human flourishing for all people. So as we come this morning to consider uh, empathy and the goodness of God, uh, please uh, pray with me.
Jesus, we look to you, for you are the pattern of goodness, the full reflection of God. You are the presence of empathy and love that enables us to walk and to work in the, with the Holy Spirit. I ask that you would reveal yourself to us this morning for the sake of your glory and for the sake of your goodness in the world, in our church, and in our lives. Amen. Now, for those of you who weren't with us last week, for the next little while, our focus during worship is going to be on the goodness of God. Hopefully, you've already picked that up from the way that Colin has already woven that theme throughout worship. In the part of the Bible that's written in Hebrew, what we call the Old Testament, the word for good is tov. Tov, God is good, God is tov in the world. And we are called to live out God's tovness, God's goodness in the world. And as Sam pointed out last week, while we are called to be tov in the image of God's tovness, unfortunately, we as God's people, the church as the gathering of God's people all across the globe have not always been tov in the world. And it is our desire as a community here at Spring to be a tov church, a good church, that even though we will make mistakes along the way, we want to live out God's goodness as a community in a, in a good trajectory towards goodness. And so we are going through this series. It's based on a book called A Church Called Tove, Forming a Goodness Culture That Resists Abuses of Power and Promotes Healing. And it's written by a New Testament scholar, Scott McKnight, and elementary school teacher, author, Laura Beringer. Isn't that a great two voices to put together? New Testament scholar and the kindergarten teacher. In the book, they talk about the circle of Tov. It's different elements of what biblical goodness looks like in the world. And the first example is of godly Tov is empathy. As McKnight and Beringer write in their book, empathy is the ability to feel what someone else feels to exit our own feelings and enter the experience of others. Thus, empathy is the ability to see the world through others' pain. So empathy is the ability to feel what someone else feels, to exit your own experience and enter into the feelings of another. A word that is strongly related to empathy, both in English as well as in the biblical languages, is compassion. They say, uh, Beringer uh, and McKnight say, the mark of empathy is to feel another's pain. The mark of compassion is having the desire to alleviate or reduce the suffering of another to do something about it. So in this sense, empathy is feeling what someone else feels and compassion is the desire to do something about it. Uh, Brené Brown has a great description of empathy that I'd like to share with you. So what is empathy, and why is it very different than sympathy? Empathy fuels connection. Sympathy drives disconnection. Empathy, it's very interesting. Teresa Wiseman is a nursing scholar who studied professions, very diverse professions, where empathy is relevant, and came up with four qualities of empathy. Perspective-taking, 
the ability to take the perspective of another person or, or recognize their perspective as their truth. Staying out of judgment, not easy when you enjoy it as much as most of us do. <laughs> recognizing emotion in other people and then communicating that. Empathy is feeling with people. And to me, I always think of empathy as this kind of sacred space when someone's kind of in a deep hole and they shout out from the bottom and they say, I'm stuck, it's dark, I'm overwhelmed. And then we look and we say, hey, climb down. I know what it's like down here. And you're not alone. Sympathy is, ooh, (laughs) it's bad, uh uh-huh. No, you want a sandwich? Um, empathy is a choice and it's a vulnerable choice because in order to connect with you I have to connect with something in myself that knows that feeling rarely if ever does an empathic response begin with at least I had a yeah and we do it all the time because you know what someone just shared something with us that's incredibly painful and we're trying to silver lining it I don't think that's a verb, but I'm using it as one. We're trying to put the silver lining around it. So I had a miscarriage. Oh, at least you know you can get pregnant. I think my marriage is falling apart. At least you have a marriage. <laughs> John's getting kicked out of school. At least Sarah is an A student. But one of the things we do sometimes in the face of very difficult conversations is we try to make things better. If I share something with you that's very difficult, I'd rather you say, I don't even know what to say right now. I'm just so glad you told me. Because the truth is, rarely can a response make something better. What makes something better is connection. Connecting with something in ourselves that knows the feeling that someone else is experiencing. Biblical compassion is very much the same as what she described. Biblically speaking, there are a few different words for empathy and compassion. Sometimes they're translated as compassion, um, but sometimes they're translated as mercy or as one's heart goes out to, my heart goes out to them. Biblical compassion is a gut thing. It is an inward parts thing. In the Hebrew, it has the connotation of a womb. And in the New Testament, it's related to your bowels, your intestines. So one gross example is in, uh, when Judas, who the one who betrayed Jesus, he dies in a field and his body bursts open and his compassion spills out. <laughs> Same word, his guts, his intestines spill out. Compassion, it's the same word. Empathy and compassion, they aren't ideas. It isn't about theological or anthropological reflection on what it means to be human and what it means to suffer. When you have compassion, when you feel another person's pain, you feel it in your intestines. I think most of us know that feeling. It is emotional. It is affectionate. It is heartbreaking. You feel the pain like a day-old Chipotle burrito twisting and tightening in your gut. The Lord is gracious and compassionate. The Lord feels our pain in his gut. In God's inner being, he feels our pain. 
By the tender mercy of our God, dawn from on high will break upon us. By God's deeply felt in his gut compassion for us, the dawn from on high will, will rise when, Je- when Jesus is sent into our pain and our suffering to be with us in it and to lift us out of it. Jesus became, Jesus came because of God's compassion. God felt the pain of the world and sent Jesus. And of course, Jesus, the full reflection of God's glory, felt our pain and entered our pain with us. We read about Jesus' inner, inner parts pain, feeling empathy numerous times in the New Testament. I'm just going to say a few. In Matthew 9, verse 36, when Jesus, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. That's that word. Because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then a couple chapters later, when Jesus landed, he was in a boat. And so he landed on shore. He saw the large crowd and he had compassion on them. And he healed their sick. And then again, a chapter later, Jesus called his disciples to him. He said, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me for three days. They have nothing to eat. I do not want to send them away hungry or they may collapse on the way. I have compassion for them. Luke 7, 13 says, as he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. A large crowd from the town was with her, and when the Lord, Jesus, saw her, his heart went out to her. That's that word. I'm not sure why they said, here, his heart went out to her, and before they said, compassion. But that's the same word. His heart went out to her, and he said, don't cry. Each of these times, seeing the people's pain, in these instances, they are all physical pain, Although in the case of the widow, there's a whole social pain attached to losing your son because she was probably on the precipice of going into poverty without having a son anymore. Jesus' compassion is for their physical pain and their hunger, their brokenness, their illness, their death. And he shares in their suffering. His heart goes out to them and he enters their pain, their pain, And works to do something about it. We see Jesus' empathy and compassion in the story that was read for us. Luke 13, uh, 10 to 13. I'm just going to read the first part again. On a Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues. And a woman was there who had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not straighten up. When Jesus saw her, he called her forward and he said to her, Women, you are set free from your infirmity. Then he put his hands on her, and immediately she straightened up and praised God. This is a beautiful story. Here is this woman who has been impaired for 18 years, hanging out in the synagogue. Now, because it was a patriarchal society, and because Judaism is a patriarchal religion, women and men are segregated from one another. At another level to her segregation, she would have been considered unclean as a disabled person. So with this segregation, it is likely that Jesus was actually teaching the men in the main part of the synagogue. And then after he was done teaching the men, he was heading out and past 
where the women were. And he was, so he was heading on his way out and he passed the woman and, and this disabled woman. And the expectation would have been that this rabbi in the situation with his privileged position as a man in a patriarchal society and as a rabbi, the expectation would have been that he would have walked right past the woman without so much as a glance. But like Jesus always does, he's always radical and subversive and scandalous in the eyes of the religious leaders. He stopped. And he saw her. He spoke to her. And he touched her. When we read this story, oftentimes we focus then on, you know, but then he, he, uh, he healed on the Sabbath, right? We focus on that. But even before you get to, to the complaint about him healing on the Sabbath, he's already broken a bunch of laws. In this moment, he broke many rules of his religion. Many would have seen him as going against Scripture because he scandalously talked to and touched this disfigured woman. But he saw her and he felt her pain. So this is a moment of great empathy stretching across the human boundaries of privilege, of classism, of ableism, and of religiosity. And added to that, he heals her on the Sabbath, which makes the leaders really upset. Jesus goes against the common interpretations of scripture of the day. And he reinterprets the Torah in a way that allows for compassion for those who were considered the lowest and unclean. And we see this all through the scriptures where Jesus reinterprets the Torah to allow the marginalized to, ha- to take away oppression that was being placed on them. He reinterprets the Torah, the law, over and over and over again to offer a voice to and freedom for the marginalized and the oppressed. Because he saw her, because he had compassion for her, a person he was not expected to even acknowledge because of what was socially and culturally and religiously between them, he saw a person made in the image of God who was bent over from the weight of living with a debilitating illness. And like that video, he came down. He didn't stand from the top and peek his head in and go, hey, you want a sandwich? He entered her pain emotionally, physically, socially, stepping into her life to lift the weight of her illness and oppression off of her. An opposite of empathy is narcissism. And if you read anything political, social, you know that in the West, we're becoming more and more narcissistic as a culture and values. Narcissism is an excessive interest in oneself. It is uh, egotistical, putting oneself first, viewing the world through the lens of everything affects them. Someone who is narcissistic at the extreme will feel superior to others and has a sense of self-importance. Someone who is narcissistic, not at the extreme, will act superior to others and put themselves and their own tribes first, even if they are unaware of it. It is a selfishness that makes everything about oneself. It is a centering of oneself, placing self in the center, placing one's own tribe in the center, whether it be an ethnic tribe, a cultural tribe, an economic tribe, an ableistic tribe, a religious tribe. 
And when the interests of your own self and your own tribe comes first, empathy is impossible. The KKK is one of the many extreme examples of it, but there are so many subtle examples even in our lives here in Toronto. When the interests of our own self and our own tribe comes first, empathy is impossible. We are not able to see the others as humans deserving of flourishing. Or we say at least, like that emu or caribou or whatever that thing was, I don't know. Empathy, on the other hand, I believe, is a decentering, a decentering of yourself and of your ego to be able to experience the other. It is a decentering of yourself to be able to hear the voices of those on the margins, those who are held at arm's length, those who have knees on their throats, crying out that they can't breathe. Jesus is the ultimate example and the enablement and living out of this kind of decentering. This is why in the Bible, when the Apostle Paul writes that we are to be like Jesus and that we have the same mindset of Jesus who took on our humanity, he lured himself into our humanity, entering the literal fabric of our suffering. This is why Paul connects tenderness and compassion to doing nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Connects tenderness and compassion to humbly value others above ourselves and to look not to our own interests, but to the interests of others. The way of Jesus is putting aside our own ego and centering the other with tenderness and compassion, entering their pain and looking to their interests instead of our own. The way of Jesus is a withness, a being with others in a way that we see them. We don't pity them. We don't simply sympathize with them, but we see them. Now, the challenge of this, of course, is that we can't force ourselves to feel something. We can't simply choose to have a gut-wrenching experience of someone else's pain, right? You can't choose that. Some of us are more naturally inclined toward empathy and compassion, my wife, Monica, for example, can meet someone and 10 minutes later will feel genuine empathy, gut-wrenching empathy for them. And some of us are just wired that way. But some of us, like myself, are not. And it can be hard for us to make those kinds of emotional connections with people that we feel their subjective experience as if it's our own. But to have empathy and compassion, something within us has to connect with what that person is feeling. Quite frankly, I would say for all of us, even those of us who are naturally empathetic, um, there are social and cultural elements that are also like walls that keep us from being able to truly feel what they feel. To truly see others like Jesus saw the bent over women. Much of what blinds us to the image of God in others and to feel what someone else feel, is feeling are the isms in life, and I've already thrown out a bunch, but I'm going to throw out a bunch more. Sexism, racism, ableism, ageism, classism, colonialism, and on and on. These isms bind us, these isms blind us to the suffering of those on the other side. And the hard thing is, is what is stopping, we can't often even see what is stopping us from being able to see. 
because we think it's the norm. It's what we live. It's just the air that we breathe and what's around us. Unless we do the work of stepping outside, of breathing the air that others breathe. When we have Jesus' eyes, we see that there is no other side. What creates the sides are these are systems and prejudices that too often are the normative, the normative privileged power holders either uphold or sometimes just don't see. And there's an uncomfortability for me speaking about this because I'm a white, middle-class, heterosexual male in a leadership position. I am the epitome of white normativity and privilege power. We need to do the work. I need to do the work. In her book, I Bring the Voices of My People, author, psychologist, and professor Shaniqua Walker-Barnes, she writes this, Grace is largely about compassion, which is Lederach, and it doesn't matter, you don't, I don't even know who Lederach is. I did look him up, but it's an author. As this other author says, start, starts, that compassion starts with a quality of attentiveness that requires a simple act of noticing the other as a person, like Jesus seeing the woman. That is a recognition of shared humanity. This type of compassion is not a feeling as much as it is a discipline, a commitment to see the other, including the collective racial other as made in the image of God. Like empathy, grace imbues us with a deeply compassionate cultural curiosity. I love that. Deeply compassionate cultural curiosity that prompts us to continually ask ourselves the question, who is missing from my journey? What stories do I not understand? Whose truths differ from mine? Which marginalized peoples do I need to learn from in order to enhance my intersectional understanding of oppression and liberation? The word intersectional simply means if you picture an intersection with different things coming together. That's what intersectionality is, a place where multiple different things come and meet in the same spot. This type of compassion is not a feeling as much as it is a discipline. A commitment to see the other. I think that as people who want to love who Jesus loves, as people who want to love like Jesus loves, to have the goodness of God in our lives, to have the goodness of God in our church, we need to be disciplined about being empathetic and compassionate. We need to discipline ourselves to see others, to decenter ourselves and cast away the isms that separate us from one another. Again, as a white middle-class male who's lived in Canada my whole life, I can't naturally the pain, feel the pain of what it is like to be black in North America. I can't naturally know what it is like to have been part of the first peoples here and my, have my entire way, uh, living history be under the oppression of others. I can't naturally know what it's like to be an Asian woman living in Canada, standing on the boundaries between two cultures that are pulling and warring over her. 
to feel what it's like to come from an abusive home or to be an immigrant whose education and experience is ignored by my new country, forcing me not only to do school again, but to pay three times as much as everyone else for it. To know what it feels like to be a stranger in my own body. To be looked at with demoralizing pity because of a disability that doesn't lessen my humanity, but everyone else treats me like it does. I can't naturally feel the pain, so I need to do the work. I need to have the discipline. I think we all do. If we want to live and love like Jesus, if we want to live out the toveness of God, the goodness of God, we need to make the vulnerable choice of putting aside ourselves and centering others. Narcissism says, I know what their problem is, and I know what to do about it, right? Which, unfortunately, has... We're in a great place now as far as missions is concerned. But unfortunately, there has been a lot of that, right? I know we know what's best. So we're going to go to these other people because we know better. We have more power. We have more knowledge. And we're going to go fix them because we know what they need. Whereas nowadays, it's common, well, it's more common practice to to go and be like, what do you need? Narcissism says, I know what the problem is, and I know what to do about it. But Christ-like humility accepts the limitations of your own intersectionality. And Christ-like humility will listen and learn and will take the lead from others. We need to make the disciplined choice to listen to stories of other people. To watch movies that center someone not like us. To read books written by people that look and live differently than we do. To listen to podcasts featuring people with different skin pigments, abilities, and body parts. And we need to make friends. Invest in the lives of. Get to know. Have one-on-one touch points with people who are different than us. Otherwise, we will always remain in our narcissistic, closed-minded worldview. Like C.P. Ellis and Ann Atwater We need to make this uncomfortable choice to co-chair committees with people that we've judged as untouchable. I want to return to Walker Barnes' those questions. Who is missing from my journey? Whose stories do I not understand? Whose truths differ from mine? Which marginalized peoples do I need to learn from in order to enhance my intersectional understanding of oppression and liberation? And as we commit ourselves to seeing humility in those, uh, sorry, as we can commit ourselves to seeing the humanity in those different than us, we create the space for the transformative work of the Spirit to create in us the empathy of Jesus. That we can go from learning and understanding to feeling empathy. As we engage with and develop different connections with others, as we decenter ourselves and we center those who have been relegated to the margins, the Spirit of God meets us there and I believe moves us towards Christ likeness. Christ who sees, who engages, and who touches others who are bent low under the heaviness of life, feeling their pain and walking alongside of them out of the darkness into the presence of the good God of compassion. Let's pray.
Jesus, uh, well, we all want to love you. We all want to love our neighbors, to love the world like you love them. And Lord, we know, we, I'm, I'm thankful that you do not need us to be perfect. That even when we go out and we do foolish things in the, in the attempt to love, um, that you will bless that. But we ask that you would give us the humility, the humility to receive the word back to us. That we need to, to uh, decenter ourselves. That as we seek to get to know and to understand the lives of others and the experiences of others, to have the humility to know that we can never fully understand because it is not our life, our lives. We have not lived it. It is not even possible for us to fully walk in another's shoes. And so, God, we want to commit to doing the work of trying to understand, of learning, of expanding our experiences and our knowledge to question the parts of our culture that we just assume to be normal, that, but, but that perhaps have been part of holding down and oppressing others. God, like Jesus, stepped aside all cultural, social, and religious expectations of his day. He stepped through those to see, to speak with, and to touch a woman bearing, who was uh, weighed down from the heaviness. Help us to be like Jesus. Help us to be like Jesus. Amen.